0: From McKinsey's Business Building Practice Leap, I'm Andrew Roth, and welcome to The Venture, a series featuring conversations with legendary venture builders in Asia about how to design, launch, and scale new businesses. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice on how leaders can build successful businesses from scratch. Welcome to another episode of The Venture. For our 10th episode, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I recently had with Lai Cheng Wen, CEO and co-founder of NinjaVan. NinjaVan is a Singapore-based express delivery company with operations in Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, Malaysia, and the Philippines. Cheng Wen is an inspiring leader, and the thing that I found most fascinating about Cheng Wen's business building journey was hearing about his passion for continuous innovation. Let's be honest, business building comes with a lot of unexpected challenges, and all new businesses deal with pain points. To succeed, the best leaders move quickly and adapt. You'll hear Cheng Wen tell the story of his unlikely journey into logistics, how he believes it's critically important to establish a dominant core business before branching out into new ventures and finally we deep dive into the importance of re-examining the key differentiators of your business make sure to keep listening at the end of the conversation simon wintels and i will be joining in a conversation to unpack the ninja van story we'll tease out some of the key elements in Wen's growth story which you can apply to your business building activities i hope you enjoyed the discussion Wen, welcome to the show looking forward to the conversation so Ninja Van has been in the market for some time now, and you started in sort of a fashion business and sort of fashion shipping, I read. And take us through a little bit of, of how you started NinjaVan and the original segment you were attacking and how you expanded from there.
1: Yeah, sure. I think to be honest, we were quite lucky in this aspect because we were doing fashion omni-channel. So we had retail stores, we had online stores as well. And I think a pain point we faced throughout that journey was that the shipping experience just didn't live up to the promise the online experience had. So I spent some time in the US and it became evident that the parcel journey, especially in logistics, was a problem then.
0: And that inspired you to get into logistics and shipping and, and you started with serving small businesses. Tell us about from a startup perspective, how do you think about addressable market and what you need to do to land on a realistic
1: addressable market? The reality of it is the addressable market we identified in day one is still the addressable market we are looking at today. and thankfully, this addressable market is huge with huge amounts of tailwinds from e-commerce growth and arguably no substitute for that. You buy online, a physical good. It has to go to your doorstep. And the network model we chose, the entire business segment we chose, just been growing tremendously. So I think this is probably not something which every startup faces. And after some time, they realized that you know, maybe that market segment's a bit too small. But I think the more frequent challenges I've seen in startups and other companies and pitch decks I've received is that people are not realistic with the target addressable market. That the real addressable market could be quite small, but they take a leap of faith, they piece what the next layer of birth that business could look like, what the adjacent businesses could look like, and they build up a huge addressable market in the back of that. But the reality is, based on what you have to do today, or even the next few years, focusing on this niche area or this area you're focusing on first, the addressable market might just be quite small. And to always depend on adjacencies and the future of a much bigger pipe dream, I think that could get quite dangerous. So as I always say, it's important to be realistic about your target market, be very clear where it starts and ends and the potential there, the growth rates there, and be more optimistic about your ability to succeed in this more realistic segment.
0: Yeah. So, and as you mentioned, you're fortunate enough where you started with SMEs you're sticking with SMEs
1: and tell us a little bit about why is that perhaps just to set the record straight it's not really SMEs we target e-commerce and not just SMEs so within the e-commerce space there are the large marketplaces like Lazada Shopee Amazon there are the large brands like Uniqlo Nike Zara and there are smaller SMEs with more homegrown brands, for example. So I think what we focused on wasn't an SME play, it was an express logistics for e-commerce play. And this cuts across all different sizes of shippers. I think the key in thinking about differentiation is there's never, never a single thing which holds throughout the passage of time. I think it's a constant evolution, a constant sharpening to always be top of class in the market in that period of time. So I I don't think we necessarily have something which we believe will differentiate us. I think that stems more from internal. So what I mean by that is in 2014 when we started, we thought the key differentiator then then was to have real time traceability. The market then was one in which your parcel gets delivered and in three days you get a notification saying that your parcel was delivered. If the parcel is late. You know, there's almost no chance you could reach out to customer service and find a way to expedite it because there's just no real time visibility in the parcel. So at that juncture, our differentiator was just real time tracking and the market soon caught up. The next question then became, what's the differentiator again? How, how do you stay ahead of the pack? And at that period, we believe that to be better doesn't mean you have to necessarily be faster, but it means that you should be more hassle free. And what this meant was to re look at our entire user experience to make sure that the pain points we face when you're shipping, simple case in point would be if you're not home, who's going to receive your parcel? Do we wanted to give people options in which they could drop off the parcels at a nearby convenience store? They could drop off the parcel in the shoe cabinet outside the main door.
0: Are you starting to see an increase in competition then? You know, because of the rise of e commerce amongst the larger marketplaces, larger e commerce marketplaces?
1: Well, I think the competition stiffened up in perhaps three years ago when the e commerce market was beyond any doubt growing exponentially. I think this created a deluge of new players coming in, starting a last mile express logistics business. And I think the reality is that at that juncture, the market was decently well served. There was no huge capacity shortage, there was no huge blocker to people shopping online. And a lot of these new competitors came in, they were unable to find a clear differentiator and what they did was they differentiated on price when they started selling below their cost structures or below even long-term cost structure. And on the back of that, they obviously sustained heavy loss because this is a business where scale matters. You need to have large enough scale because that drives a cost down which allows you to price competitively. But the new players coming in, what they did was they priced even below the cost structures of large players. And that led to just very unsustainable, vicious cycle altogether where the, the market would just have to fight on price for a short period of time. And I think in time, you see that consolidation starts to happen again. The smaller players get forced out and the larger players got even larger.
0: You're reaching scale and do you have a specific metric where you know a particular driver needs to hit a, a minimum number of deliveries per day in order to break even? And has that number come down as you've introduced new different digital capabilities to create those efficiencies?
1: I think the way we look at productivity increases can be quite easily split into two different parts to it. So our two-pronged approach to that, the first is how we leverage digital tools and technology. The second would be how we leverage on and better understand human behavior. So in terms of tools and technology, there are many ways around that. Obviously, having optimized algorithms, better sorting facilities, Interestingly, one of the biggest things which changed for us was the fact that once we moved out of Singapore, we realized that when drivers are delivering parcels, they may not have an active internet connection because they may be deep in an apartment block. And our systems actually required real-time information to be transmitted. So, we had to build quite complex caching systems on mobile devices just to make sure that we capture all of these data on an upfront basis. So, there are many ways to do it on the tech front. But I think most people, what they forget about is that at the end of the day, if it's people who are doing the job, and it's not just purely using a digital layer above them, you need to understand the key motivations of humans. How do you have to write organizational structures? Do you have the right span of control, the right management controls, the right level of incentivizations? When we look at pay schemes, for example, pay schemes are, could be crafted in 100 different ways. Given the type of job, the type of autonomy in a certain job, what's the best way to craft a pay scheme which maximizes productivity? So, I mean, you
0: mentioned, yeah, the technology and the human behavior side. I would imagine that when you started to grow outside Singapore, the need to understand sort of the human behavior and localize the product in each of these countries went up. A lot of startups from Singapore need to quickly expand all across Southeast Asia and often struggle. Did you have a
1: playbook? The first thing we did, I think, was to be very cognizant that in different cultures, different geographies, things will be different. Assuming that everything functions the same way on a global level, I think that's probably the first mistake people make. To think that if this works for me, it should work for you. So I think having an open mind, going to the market and relearning everything from scratch, that's key. The next thing would then be, even if you understand that everything could be different, how do you streamline your HQ? How do you streamline the regional efforts? How do you streamline technology to allow you to cater to six disparate and extremely different solution sets? I think what's important there as well is to really distill problems to the core. So if you look at engineering and what we build a product, we always ask ourselves, this might look like a solution, but is there a more fundamental, more core way of building the database schemas still, in a way such that it can cater to differentiation thereafter.
0: So you started to, I guess, centralize the technical platform at HQ level, and then you had a lot of, I guess, flexibility across your, your microservices, APIs to localize. Was there example of a, a big challenge that you had to overcome in a specific market?
1: In Singapore, addressing is done by a postal code. In Vietnam, an exact location is done through a string of words, with nothing really driving towards that and postal codes are slightly non existent. But if we distilled it further into something more core, everything points towards a lat long, a latitude, longitude, and that is universal. The customization was built above that to cater to each different market. The big leaps we made in terms of scaling up systems were done by being one of the first in southeast asia to adopt the microservices architecture that took a lot of time but what this allowed us to do was it allowed us to have very quick turnaround times. To, to have the ability to change one part of our systems without affecting too much of the rest
0: yeah and just for the audience i mean making that shift from a, a monolithic backend or infrastructure to more of a distributed or microservices is a is a big step. And microservices are like Lego bricks that represent different business logic or capabilities within a platform. And those Lego bricks can have its own security, it can have its own storage, its own memory processing speed related to each one of the small bricks that creates this flexibility. And that, that must have been painful to, to make the, I guess, to kind of refactor the first platform and and then into microservices. How was that for you?
1: Oh, it was painful, all right. We had DB outages. We couldn't sleep at night. We had to constantly check our operations to make sure that everything was running smoothly. So technically, there's no downtime, which caused a lot of problems because some of these, you just have to go down for a while. And imagine coordinating across a thousand facilities, telling them that systems be down for an hour. It was a bit of a challenge when we were doing that but I think it's always better to bite the bullet earlier than later.
0: Yeah, there's, I guess, no way or, no way around it, especially if you were busy at the time. And now you're at, uh, what is it, a 1,000 parcels a minute?
1: I can't remember how to convert it. It's about two million a day.
0: Right, right. Okay, so you made the shift on, on the back end that enabled you to localize what you're doing much faster across Southeast Asia. Take us through, that's on the technical side. On the product side, when did you know you had sort of quote-unquote product market fit? And, and how did you define that in each of these new markets as you expanded outside Singapore?
1: Oh, I'll be honest, in, in this business, we knew we had product market fit when our first few customers in Singapore were really pleased with us, And I can name a few. The differentiators we had on tracking led to much improved customer service for them. When customers were asking, where's my parcel, we could give them a response. I know it sounds simple, but then, then, that made a difference. Again, that difference, that didn't hold. People soon caught up. But the first few customers we reached out to said, sure, we'll try you. And thereafter, started using us and didn't leave. I think there was a clear sign of product market fit. And when we didn't change anything and volume started going up day on day, I think that's when we knew we hit it. Arguably, in our business, I do think product market fits. Kind of easier to ascertain, I can imagine in some pure tech businesses saas businesses that could be a lot harder what's on the
0: horizon i mean it sounds like you're constantly iterating the experience for your your shippers anything you want to share that is on beyond hassle free or any any adjacent businesses you're starting to go into especially with covid-19 i mean the the pandemic has has forced a lot of e-commerce businesses to grow it's forced a lot of offline businesses to become e-commerce businesses and a lot of small businesses to start stepping into e-commerce anything you want to share there
1: yeah sure you know i mentioned just now when we look at a dress market we have to be realistic but optimistic on our ability to succeed in that market then start looking at adjacencies <laughs> right so you know, the, the core business is one of express logistics which is how we deliver parcels which offers chase online increasingly we see that the value we can bring to our customers from traceability To hassle free, should then extend further into areas which are outside of our core business. A small seller, an online seller, yes, he needs to ship parcels to his customers, but he also has a cross border supply chain to contend with. He also requires financing for his supply chain, financing for cash on delivery. And I think these are areas which we are starting to look at. And we believe that by having an ecosystem of relevant services for these. Shippers, we actually drive more retention. So, what's interesting is that we have been thinking about this for some time, but we actively refrain from doing that. We believe that it would be overly disruptive if we were not able to become dominant in our core service. I think building ancillary services would only serve to distract rather than accelerate that growth, but only when we were confident that we were one of the few top players in the region. Did we believe that it was time to start looking to adjacencies to then further cement our leadership position in this market.
0: That takes an enormous amount of patience too. I would imagine if you're getting success since 2017 launching in other, other markets, you are probably having conversations with your board around how to expand. You know, Take us into the boardroom a little bit. When did you decide to start entering these adjacent businesses and you know, cross-border financing? Is that happening right now? And did you ever experience pressure from the board or other investors to move faster?
1: Well, since twenty sixteen, we have been under a lot of pressure to look at point to point, to look at various forms of things we could be doing with our core business. If we fail to focus on this business, to understand what are the key success factors in this business, I think if we lose that leadership position, the agency businesses will have no chance of success. Whereas competitors will start these adjacent businesses first without a strong fundamental core. These are customers' segments which we can win in time because of our core business. But jumping ahead, I think, will give you a short-term success, but nothing to stand on if someone else comes for the market. So it was always challenging. It's also easy for VCs and investors to look at the wider market and see many different opportunities and Many times, a lot of these seem a lot more synergistic than they really are. So it was always a hard fight, but we persisted and thankfully, the core business grew. So I think that brought us some time to be more measured in the way we expand the business.
0: The adjacent businesses, you know, financing in particular you mentioned is, is interesting. Are you you're talking about microfinancing for small businesses? How, how are you approaching that?
1: We started first not by looking at financing, we started first by looking at What's our core? Our core are the shippers who ship with us. We then looked at what these shippers required and we built our adjacencies from there on. So we started first by looking at our core and what they required and then we ascertained if that was worth doing because it's, it's a bit too easy to look at a large market and in your head draw too many connecting lines to say that this is highly synergistic and hence we should do it. You basically self-justify. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If it's a big enough market you want it, you will find a reason why it is synergistic. And I think that could be a very slippery slope. And you mentioned,
0: you kind of talk a lot about understanding the human behavior, whether it's you know, the team that works with you or your customers themselves. How are you keeping the pulse on those two things as CEO? You know, I could imagine with the kind of growth you're going through right now, you are getting pulled
1: into lots of directions. That's a slow evolution. When the company was smaller, people were closer. It was very personal. And my belief is that this should still continue as long as possible. But the reality is that there could be many more degrees of freedom between you and someone else in the company. So how then do you really still have that level of understanding, closeness, drive the kind of culture at the same time? But as the company gets bigger, it becomes harder. But then you need to look at more technical ways or more scientific ways of feeling the pulse of understanding the customers. And that's where we built up divisions in HR, which looks at employee engagement became more scientific in understanding what causes employee NPS to move. What are they complaining about? And interestingly, are their complaints correlated to NPS? So I guess what you see sometimes is in large organisations, which they have grown accustomed to all of these technical scientific solutions. They kind of lose that human touch. They they lose that that personal one degree of freedom management. And I think that becomes very dangerous because I think for you to be effective, you need to continue both while understanding that that personal touch may be limited, but it still matters because it cascades through. But if you give up one over the other, I think that's where you start seeing a lot of troubles and problems.
0: Does this mean you're still picking up routes from every time uh, now and then?
1: Increasingly so. Well, to be honest, in the early days, it wasn't to maintain a personal touch, which is why we kept delivering parcels ourselves. It was a mere act of desperation because we just couldn't deliver enough parcels and we just had to do it ourselves because we promised our customers that no matter what, we always deliver on time.
0: With COVID 19, lots of changes happening with the types of volumes coming from your core business, but is the volume coming from SMEs starting to get so large because they've been forced into this, this new normal, or is this is something that you've been planning along the way and you're kind of ready for it?
1: Well, to be honest, what we have seen is, I don't think COVID-19 specifically changed anything in how the evolution of the e-commerce market will look like. So what, what I mean by this is, there are a few evolutions we're seeing. Offline big retailers starting to go online in force. Social commerce starting to become more prevalent because of strong curation and engagement. And platforms and marketplaces continuing to grow because of the assortment and convenience they offer. I think all of these were moving along. I don't think COVID has changed how these segments conducting their businesses or the different interactions they're having with customers. I think what COVID-19 has done is they have accelerated the evolution of our so in a short span of two months, three months in many of the countries, the inability to go out forced people to look on their phones and to find entertainment, to find shopping. I, I don't view shopping as entertainment, but I'm sure many people do, right? So arguably shopping is entertainment as well. And what better way to do it than combine entertainment with shopping through life auctions, through following an influencer, buying what she proposes, what she suggests. So I think all of these trends you no, know, writing was on the wall for all of it, but could it have taken two, four years more, perhaps? But COVID-19 compressed that evolution into a short 12 months. I think on the back of that, we, we've seen significant growth in all of these segments. We have seen significant improvements. We have seen significant changes in the mentality. And I think all of these are boding quite well for our core business. So this acceleration,
0: as you describe it, from COVID is leading to growth. I mean, the, the future for Ninja Van, the way you're describing it sounds great. Nothing keeps you up at night.
1: Yeah, I think the, actually, to be honest, what keeps me up at night, it's not so much how the markets we're in are growing and so on. I think a lot of growth in e-commerce, a lot of growth in consumerism in the region is driven a lot by a more open borders, more porous borders, and how we move goods around from manufacturer in one country to a distributor in the other and final consumer in the third country. But COVID-19 has shut down many borders. I think questions are still abound as to whether these borders may lead to more nationalist feelings where significant excise duties, import duties are placed to drive more domestic production and consumption. So my concern is if if borders remain to be tight and Perhaps continue to tighten. I think it could have an undue influence on how e commerce grows because e commerce is really growing on the back of a more free, open, democratized digital layer. Right, right.
0: Anything you want to share uh, with the audience on what's coming down the line for Ninja Van?
1: Well, I think what's coming down the line is we have a commitment to make every delivery as hassle free as possible. So I, I think we really intend to deliver on that promise. I don't see us as having any superb long term differentiator apart from our promise to constantly innovate. And only with this innovation will you find a differentiator every year.
0: Thanks so much for sharing. It was, uh, it was great to talk to you and look forward to catching up uh, sometime again soon. Now comes a segment where we invite founders and experts from McKinsey to provide more context and to draw practical insights. I'm joined by Simon Wintels. Simon is a McKinsey partner and leads our consumer digital analytics practice in the Asia Pacific. Simon, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you for having me. Chang-Wen and I, we discussed a lot in this episode on business building and I, one of the the things that struck me is uh, his focus on the value proposition when he was starting off uh, early with Ninja Van, And, you know, he clearly says, look there, initially their value proposition was to do real-time tracking of parcels. Right. And they went straight to solving a problem in the customer journey. What are some of the lessons learned here for incumbents that are trying to launch businesses who are always facing this, this challenge of throwing lots of features into an MVP versus you know honing in on one or, one or two key signature
2: moments? I think that you're touching upon the core of what needs to be solved. Right. And maybe just to relate to what he was saying and, and your question is, I, I have two kids, a two year old and a four year old. One of which sleeps during the day and both of which go to bed a little bit earlier than than my neighbor's. Uh, and I, I do have some real pain points and moments of delight when it comes to e-commerce deliveries. And I think like many others, associate performance and experience of the actual delivery with the company that sent it. right? So, And I had some pretty disastrous instances where packages were delivered at 9.45 uh, three incessant rings at the door. Uh, whilst it took me thirty seconds to get to the door, waking up my kids in the process. And some of these pain points can actually be solved by by both technology and and change management, right? So I think it it does boil down to when you think about value proposition: who are my customers? What would delight them? And how do I take away the real pain points in their in their journey, right? So as you said. Uh, or, or uh, as mentioned and as, as many platforms actually get into, um, some features have tremendous value for me, right? As a, as a father of two, right? They might not have the same, the same impact on others, but a heads up when a delivery is near like food aggregators do, right? Or the ability to select a time for when the package comes and being able to rely on that time or written instructions, which then, uh, the company needs to make sure are followed, right? I've had great experiences. I had not so great experiences. But if you offer the option, I expect you to stick to it, right? So I think in a, in, in a world where where lots is happening at the same time, it's critical to understand pain points and moments of delight and and nail the experiences of a couple of critical ones. And I think it's, it's picking those critical ones, which is part of the job. And you and I have discussed this before, right? Execution, 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 right? Innovation is 1% inspiration, 99% percent perspiration. And a lot of concepts aren't new, but it's the the execution and the timing of that execution that really matters.
0: You know, I like the way you bring it back to to something personal. And and that is, you know, you've had an experience where you get the you know ring, the incessant ring at the door at 9.45 p.m. while your children are sleeping. And you know, that's a serious problem for you. And you know making sure innovation or you know the signature moment is is not screwing that part up or real time tracking of a parcel as their initial signature moment may sound small but often just improving the UI UX can be the differentiator versus dreaming up some you know blue sky kind of uh, feature or jumping onto some bandwagon on su- some new technology Win- winning on on pers- perspiration yeah
2: i uh, know fully agree and i think uh I think um, uh, with all the technologies in the world, some companies and some individuals resort to technology as the answer, whereas I think a good number of actual pain points can be solved by many other things where technology is an enabler. But I think if you, right, to, to bring it back to to logistics, right, the smile at the door, the friendliness of the person, the fact that they might be willing to just send you a text two minutes before they arrive, all of that sort of stuff is it, it comes down to the human element as well right so i think it's the combination of the the human element and the technology and technology by itself will not solve just all these pain points but i think and that's where identifying these pain points for your target set of customers becomes critical and knowing which ones to tackle first right because i think that that was also one of the things you discussed is you can throw lots of technological solutions and features into your into your solution or your product um, but they need to tackle they need to tackle the um, uh, the real pain points, and they need uh, you can't do it all at the same time. So you need to prioritize, right? And the um, I think the one thing that's even more interesting in a business like logistics uh, or fulfillment is that you need to not just look at this from the receiver angle, right? So the individual customer that receives a package, but also what are you offering to the your actual paying customers, right? In many instances, right? The the one that sends the package because they might require different types of services. And how do you trade off, right? Trying to improve it for me, Simon, the individual that receives the package, but also me, Simon, that may have a small uh, business that sends packages to to others, right? And and how do you provide me with the services that I need to be successful in my business? Yeah, exactly. So you know,
0: making sure you solve the, the journey for the sender, not just the receiver. And he then goes into talking about targeting different types of senders. You know, they they started off with very large e-commerce players. Now, because of COVID-19, they're starting to support more, you know, small online sellers. And he seems very deliberate about um, how to expand, you know, adjacent businesses. You know, you, you haven't seen them, you know, throw lots of new ecosystem or adjacent businesses within their first, you know, five, six years, they've, they stayed true to the, to the core business, but now they're starting to expand on the different types of, um, uh, shippers that they serve, you know, the small online sellers and are starting to get into exploring things like, like financing. It sounds like they were, they are mentioning. Um, I was just curious, you know, from a incumbent perspective, as compared to a startup, how should how should incumbents think about this? You know, startups are very careful about um, pivoting, about jumping uh, into too many new businesses too fast before they nail the core business. Uh, what what are some of your thoughts on 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 building large ecosystems or jumping into the, your your next adjacent business?
2: Yeah, these are incredibly exciting times, right? But I do believe that the question that you're asking boils down to the age-old strategy question, right? Of where where do I play and how do I win, right? And now as digital is accelerating and blurring many of these traditionally nicely segregated or delineated industries, things become more complex, but in the end, it does boil down to where do I play and do I have something or can I build something that can generate or give me a competitive sustainable advantage? That's in the end what business is, is setting out to do. And I think with this, where you used to have conglomerates or, or multi-business or multi-industry businesses, now the that is uh, transforming a bit into an ecosystem or a super app, or there's other terms that different people use to refer to a similar concept where you put businesses together that fundamentally rely on a couple of things, right? One is network effects. Right. So having more of one group attracts more of the other. So take uh, ride hailing, for example, where more drivers, where more users attract more drivers, which in turn attract more users Uh, and and food aggregators where more restaurants attract more users, which in turn makes it really hard for restaurants to not play on that app. Right. It also offers shared acquisition costs. Right. So I have a customer that I now can offer incremental services to without having to spend again on acquiring that customer right, which is a, a typical business case killer, as you know, right? C- cost of acquisition for new businesses can make or break your PL in the first couple of years. And you create high switching costs, right? So you create this gravitational pull. If ecosystems personalize their offering, get to know me, form an important part of my life, switching up becomes very difficult for me, right? So if I... It, I, I can... I don't know what the latest research is, but you can only open up so many apps on your. Or you only open up so many apps on your phone, right? So if you're not one of those apps that people open, the chances to get in are very hard, and that's why people get excited about the ecosystem or super app strategy, right? But it like what people shouldn't forget is that fundamentally the core business that you built this on needs to be sound, right? And and for a couple of reasons, right. In many of these ecosystem strategies, there's still a lot of growth, which means that you need to attract and recruit new users. If the first experience of your core service on that app is not good, is not up to the expectations of the users, the chances are that they'll switch to the next best version, right? Which means that you've lost an opportunity to lock them in. And it's really, it's now even harder to get them back, right? The second thing is consistent poor experience lowers the switching cost, right? If I continuously... Uh, on an ecosystem or super app, get a poor experience, be it ride hailing, be it food delivery, be it uh, customer interactions, be it late shipments, late deliveries, I will switch, right? And I then get locked into someone else's ecosystem. And, and a lot of these ecosystems also take a lot of long time to become profitable, right? You've seen this with the recent SPAC and the, the IPOs, right? Where, where these super apps open up their, their financials to the to the outside world, then they're not a pretty view, right? And without a solid core business that's at scale, you might be funding these, these new adjacencies with even more money that you actually have to plow into the core business to be successful. So I'm very much a fan of a deliberate trade-off. Uh, asking is my core business strong enough? Is it exciting enough to recruit new users? And is it meeting the expectations of my core users before I plow a lot of money into that? So I think in the end, it's, it's back to the core question of where do I play? How do I win? And, and, and the third one is how do I time it? Right. Because, um, we also, we always love to. Uh, study the successful businesses, but forget that for every one successful business, there's probably nine that tried the same thing just at the wrong time. Uh, so we all, always have to be a little bit careful in, in drawing implications for from what's called survivor bias, right? Or survivorship bias.
0: Yeah, no, and, I know. I, and, and I agree that the ecosystem strategy, you know, everyone gets excited about trying to build a super app and it sounds good on paper, Uh, I think the lesson learned here or what, what I'm picking up from Chang Wen from Ninja van is, you know, if you're an incumbent that wants to build a new business now, uh, you know, look at how deliberate he was or how sort of obsessed he was with the core business, you know, even, you know, moving from, uh, real-time tracking of parcels to then giving, you know, shippers and receivers convenience on, on when and, and where to pick up their packages, um, and, you know, it's been several years and now they're starting to explore adjacent businesses they are starting to st- step forward in, into the ecosystem. But that's been, you know, after maybe, you know, seven plus years of them being in business and uh, uh, the ecosystem has its place. Uh, it does take a long time to monetize, but you, you can't get there without nailing, nailing the core business. And you know, Changlin starts to go into, okay, looking a little bit more more forward, what what are some of the trends on the horizon? And he starts talking about social commerce and how, you know, especially during COVID, shopping became a form of entertainment. You know, everyone being home, people were were shopping more, they're spending more time uh, on their phone shopping. And, you know, big offline retailers are starting to go online. You know, what are some of the top trends in social commerce uh, that you spot in Southeast Asia? And what what's, you know, this is another buzzword that's being thrown out there. What's your take on social commerce?
2: Look, I I, I won't bore you, but I could go on a very long tangent on the definition of social commerce. Uh, but I I do think uh, only half jokingly, right? I I do think that it matters uh, because people use the use the term quite loosely in some instances, right? But but for me, the questions I, I have in conversations is what what does it social media mean, right? When you when you use the word, right? Is it, does it mean the sales of goods? from individuals to individuals facilitated by social media. And we've done some research in Indonesia a few years ago in our digital archipelago report that showed that there's actually 10 million users back in 2017, 18, that that were pure social commerce users in that sense, right? Individuals that shipped packages and goods to other individuals facilitated by social media. But typically, people also mean uh, the sales of good uh, 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 buying that happens through platforms like Pinduoduo, right? Socially influenced commerce, right, where you group together and trade, right, or or buy. Um, but how about home shopping or live streaming, right? Uh, one of the big trends during the the COVID lockdown, I think, in China very uh, very big, but but also in Southeast Asia, coming through some of the traditional e commerce platforms. Uh, or is it influencers selling a product right is that is that social commerce is individuals selling on behalf of companies right think the new version the 4.0 a digital version of multi-layer marketing um uh, brand organized virtual experiences on social media does that count right so so i, I look I can, I can go on and on and on about social media or socially influenced commerce and, and the role that it plays in the shopping journey but uh a few years we, we as i said we we did look at social commerce in indonesia in the more narrow definition right individuals using social media to transact that was much bigger than we had expected right and it was rapidly growing and it was enabled by uh, payment wallets as well as logistics providers right one of the the more most important things was a lack of trust and a lack of Infra, uh, like actual logistics infrastructure. And the thing is, that's not blatantly obvious in GMV numbers, right? It's very much hidden, but this was a very big portion of individual livelihoods and using social media to to transact. But I think my main takeaway is it's it's a fact of life. It won't go away and it will become more sizable, right? So if you look at Pinduoduo, grew to become one of the most popular platforms in China, and it didn't even exist six, seven years ago, right? Uh, same for TikTok, Right, five found it five years ago. And COVID 19 has just accelerated many of these as new users have actually joined the online shopping world, had pleasant and positive experiences, and existing users just used more of it. What we will see is is a blurring, right? So I already talked about the the different definitions. It will become harder and harder to keep them apart. Right. So we're seeing e-commerce platforms having introduced opportunities for sellers and buyers to connect directly uh, to chat, right, on the e-commerce platform. Social media sites have introduced buying buttons, right? Buy now or or add to basket, right? Which is uh, their traditional role as just a communications channel now becomes a shopping platform. Integrating different types of payments, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't think that creativity will stop there, right? And some are uh, enabled by very deep pockets, right? So we'll see more creativity. We'll see more of these um, blurring of lines. We'll see continuous growth. And I think the main question for many companies is how do I manage these new channels to consumer, right? How does it fit with my direct-to-consumer strategy, my D2C strategy? How does it fit with my traditional, if I think about consumer packaged goods manufacturers, how does it fit with my traditional retail channel? How do I do digital marketing? How do I use influencers? Should I have a presence on some of these marketplaces, right? So it, many, many different new questions because the the routes to consumer have, have, have increased uh, many fold right um, and i think maybe to link this back to like what we talked about in terms of logistics and and what what um uh what you mentioned the conversation you you just had um the amount of customers right paying customers for the likes of ninja van will increase right and they will have different pain points right the pain points of a large shopping platform is not the same as a, as a small individual with their own business right so uh, think about warehousing and inventory management if I'm a small business I might not want to care about that I might need different reports I need different insights I need uh, return flows right I I I need a lot of help if if I want to be a successful SME or or even an individual that sells so I think a lot of growth for these uh for the likes of 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 Ninjavan and others uh, but also a lot to do to make sure that they um, linking to the point that we discussed earlier on, nail the value proposition for these new types of customers and and really what they need.
0: Yeah, no, it, it'll it'll be interesting to see as social commerce begins to rise, and as you mentioned, uh, it's starting to happen a lot more over messaging, obviously, and how that will impact the the journey. If you're able to, you know, buy something over a, a conversation via a messaging app, um, you know, it starts to make uh, all these mobile apps that exist out there sort of invisible if you can just have a conversation and get what you want and how that impacts uh, logistics and the speed of logistics and 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 how it can give rise to more of these uh you know direct to consumer or consumer to consumer uh businesses that exist out there um it's becoming so prevalent that we're starting to hear more that on these marketplaces where you have you know small businesses that have set up small shops to sell um, uh, as a small storefront on a large e-commerce platform that there are, it seems to be that there's, there's a trend that there's consolidation happening amongst those sellers. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the, in the next few years. So there's, you know, we, we, we covered a lot here, you know, how, um, how incumbents and, you know, how Ninja Van kept it simple in the beginning on their, on their core value proposition, you know, really digging into taking the hassle out of, express logistics and then um you know you covered sort of the elements that need to be in place to to step into the ecosystem world um, we could probably have uh, another conversation or a, a show dedicated just to ecosystem building and then you know kind of jump jumping onto the the social commerce bandwagon and and dissecting that a bit really appreciate your time and uh look forward to talking again my pleasure You have been listening to The Venture with me, Andrew Roth. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to leave a review and rating on your favorite episode. We will be back with a brand new episode next month.